Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. And we hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Hello and welcome to Local Zero with Matt, Fraser and Becky. Throughout February, we'll be talking to a bunch of people who've been working hard over the past four years to help turn their communities into energy smart places, bringing together supply, demand, infrastructure and people and connecting them in a smart way at a local level, like a town, city or region. Yes, so this is the second of four weekly episodes we're recording this month, covering some of the very exciting findings that are coming out of the UK government's Prospering from the Energy Revolution Programme, or PIFA for short. If you missed our chat last week, it was on policy and regulation to support smarter, more local energy systems. We had Merlin Hyman from Regen and Chris Dunham from Carbon Descent. Be sure to go back and check that episode out if it's of interest. This week's episode will focus on finance and investment for energy smart places. We'll be chatting with Gerald Hiles, Director of Energy Capital at the West Midlands Combined Authority, and Tim Rose, Programme Lead of the Energy Superhub Oxford Project. And if you are enjoying Local Zero, do remember to subscribe to the pod. That way, new episodes will land in your device every time we release them as if by magic. Check out our website where you can listen to everything we've ever done and also find exciting things like transcriptions of our episodes. You can search for specific topics and lots more. Check out localzeropod.com. You can also find us on Twitter at localzeropod or email any longer musings to localzeropod at gmail.com. Wonderful. So, Fraser, Becky, we've got a really great episode lined up. But before we get into it, we have some absolutely staggering and wonderful news, Fraser. Uh, you better let the listeners know. Yeah, staggering news indeed. I, uh, I this week, this weekend, after a, a mad January, submitted my PhD thesis. Woo! <laughs> um, which has been four years in the making. Um, it doesn't look anything like I thought it was going to look when it started. Um, but yeah, PhD thesis is submitted, closing that that final chapter in every sense, exploring inequalities in the uptake of low carbon mm. tech, like solar panels, like heat pumps, demonstrating how they evolve over time, 
and unpacking ways to, to resolve those inequalities at the local level. So very much pertinent to Local Zero. Yeah. I mean, what a, what a different time and context to be releasing this. When you started four years ago, what a different world where, I mean, obviously these inequalities have been rife for some time, but have got worse and worse and worse. So um, you, you've timed it nicely. <laughs> yeah, Matt, when I, when, when I started doing this, and Becky can attest to this, I was just, I was doing it with my feet up. I thought we've got all the time in the world to fix this. This is no problem yeah. at all. I remember some of the early meetings just chilling out in coffee shops. It wasn't very serious <laughs> at all. And I have to admit, over the last few months, I've been thinking, is he going to submit it? Are we going to get there? <laughs> well, many of the listeners won't know that you've been Becky's. Sorry, Becky, you've been Fraser's yeah. supervisor, not, for my, not the other for way my around. Sins. Uh, you've, yeah. So, so you know that that sense of relief. I mean, you know, I've been through that. Once your student submits uh, the supervisor, it's it's not quite as big as the relief of the student, but it's it's a big one. So, well done, Fraser, and we, we look forward to introducing you soon as Doctor Stewart, but not quite yet. Not quite yet. Oh, that's got a scary sound to it, doesn't it? <laughs> hey, you've got to wear your stripes. We've got a viber, but this is the big one. Yeah, well, that's it. Yeah. I guess some other good news is that we've had, through our friend of the pod and regular guest, Dr. Jen Roberts, who is a senior lecturer at the University of Strathclyde. Uh, Jen, who's been on many times, sent us an email, which basically captured some of her students' feedback. So she has given her students a three-line whip. They all have to go and listen to an episode of Local Zero Pod. Lucky them. And uh, I think the episode that they covered was one uh, titled Infrastructure and Environment, which if you cast your minds back, we heard a little bit about how we need to build the infrastructure to deliver net zero. Now, the good news is the feedback was positive. Uh, You know, this is, (laughs) we were really put through our paces here. Um, And one of the comments I've really, really enjoyed, which if I can paraphrase was, I didn't realize how much of the effort that's needed for net zero isn't just building stuff and isn't just technology. It's about, and I quote, it's about changing people's mentality and making them not focus on just the individual materialistic aspects of making changes, um, but that that bigger, that, you know, mindset. So I f- thought that was fantastic. And they gave an example, uh, which I th- we must have talked about in the kick around, which is around um, the drive through restaurants in Glasgow and this push to kind of, you know, planning to kind of boycott these so people aren't necessarily driving for a hamburger, yes. which seems like an imminently sensible thing to be doing in a net zero world. But um, what I will say is we've had some constructive feedback, folks, which was along the lines of really enjoyed the pod, excellent listening, did start to zone out after a while. It would be better if there were more pictures, ideally moving pictures. So you've you've heard it. You've heard it here first. Local Zero, the film, is coming to a, an IMAX cinema near you. So thank you for that. And thanks, Jen. We, some fantastic feedback. This really keeps us going. So first of all, I don't think I was on that episode, so that might explain the zone and out comment. But I think somewhat terrifying and a real sense of a scary responsibility that we're being used to for educational purposes. Yeah, and and I just think it's great that be able to use this as a resource. So as we know, local this pod's all about local climate action and that that lives and dies on education about informing people about what to do. And really, you know, doing this in the classrooms, whether it's primary schools all the way through to university, I'm thrilled it's being used. And and I am increasingly using it for my own teaching. And thank you to our producers, Patrick and others, who've helped to turn our website into a repository. So if you have any teaching needs doesn't have to be in the classroom could be in the local community uh, please get onto the website and have a look what we've done there because it's a lot of hard work so thank you patrick yeah and it's absolutely amazing i just I, what's been done with that and i do think that 
you know, I, I take Fraser's point, you know, perhaps we are, we do get a little bit loose sometimes on the show, but I do think there's a real value in some of the, like the sorts of guests that come and talk to us and the insights we glean from them, from actually like working on the ground, trying to do and deliver. It's just golden. So absolutely, yeah. absolutely thrilled that it's being used in this way. Especially those local zero lives when they've had a couple of wines beforehand. As oh, well. yes, 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 loose. Yeah, emphasis <laughs> on loose. Uh, and I think, Becky, that, that is an excellent segue into today's episode where we hear from two further experts in their field who are actually doing this and getting their hands dirty in delivering these smart local energy systems. But before we hand over to those experts, I think let's just tap into the brain of uh, the genius boy sitting right in front of us. Because Fraser, <laughs> you've just been doing some, some brilliant work talking to a lot of people on the ground focusing in on smart local energy systems and all about some of the finance and investment challenges that they've been having. Yeah, absolutely. Um, terrifying thought tapping into my brain at the best of times. But the work that we have, the work that we have just done, we 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 spoke to uh, more or less all the, the different PFER projects, the Prospering from the Energy Revolution uh, Smart Local Energy System projects. And finance and investment was a key theme of that, something that we were trying to unpack. And that uh, some of the, the the key findings around that, I guess, were that while it's you know it's still a complex a complex proposition, we're still uh, developing some of these ideas, pulling them together. The the program has created a whole load of evidence in this space, developed new business models, new ways that uh, smart local energy systems can become financially viable and and lucrative going forward for a whole host of people, right? For investors, for communities, for, for households in terms of bill savings, for the treasury, anyone in between, uh, there is strong value on offer. What we'd also found in those projects experience was that actually there's a, there's a ton of appetite to invest in these kinds of projects. There's a real understanding in the value that they can deliver. But what is required to ultimately to shape and deliver that is some kind of, of certainty in terms of policy and regulation, which I think is underpinned by something that came up in last week's episode, policy and regulation, um, is that need for that kind of central centralized vision of exactly how these things piece together, exactly how we can incentivize not just investment or new financial models in local energy systems, but also to really enable and unlock that social and economic value more broadly that's on offer. So a really, really exciting space, a ton of work done to demystify these processes, lots of appetite, lots of value on offer, and they're excited for the, the discussion about how we, how we unlock that going forward. So without further ado, I think we better bring in our guests to talk about this a bit more. Hello, I'm Cheryl Hiles, Director of Energy Capital at the West Midlands Combined Authority. And I'm Tim Rose. I'm the uh, Programme Lead for the Energy Super Hub Oxford project. Uh, and uh, I work for EDF Renewables, who are the lead partner in that project. So a very warm welcome to Tim and Cheryl. Great to have you on board the good ship Local Zero. So I just wondered whether, Tim, maybe you might be able to, to begin us off talking a little bit about the types of projects you've been involved with through the PIFA program um, and what they're doing differently and, and how they're, I guess, trying to change our energy system. Uh, yeah, sure. So I give you a very quick intro to uh, the project that, that I was running, which is uh, the Energy Superhub Oxford project. And this is one of uh, three the three demonstrators that uh, were part of the PIFA program. And all of those demonstrators, as I think we, we all know here, are attempting to deal with power, transport, and heat elements. 
of moving to net zero. And so that's what, what we were doing in our project. But we were all these projects were very different. Ours was different from many of the others uh, in the program. Notably, I think we were the only project that was looking at a sort of connection uh, to the transmission system. So Energy Super Hub Oxford uh, had those three main elements. The, the two transmission connected elements for us were firstly a very large uh, storage project based at the Oxford substation just, just near the city, uh, a very large battery uh, which uh, is innovative in a number of ways. So it was, uh, uh, we all know about lithium batteries and may, may have heard of very large lithium batteries, but this is a hybrid battery. So it, it was a combination of lithium ion and vanadium flow, which is a completely different technology. For that reason, it was interesting to the, to the uh, Innovate project and the PIFA program. Uh, and the idea uh, of this project is how we can combine lithium and vanadium uh, two different chemistries and, and show how there could be benefits from uh, from using those together. So transmission connected is the first transmission connected battery in the UK, uh, 50 megawatt battery, so uh, very, very large. And uh, as I say, uh, also has this vanadium component, which is a, a two megawatt vanadium flow battery. So that's one part. And then on the transport side, uh, we have also built the, under this project the first private wire so it's our own uh, cable network connected again to that transmission uh, point of connection uh, and leading to a park and ride in the west of, uh, of Oxford, which uh, is an existing park and ride, but is now providing um, charging services uh, to uh, the public at that uh, station. We have, uh, this is the largest charging hub in the UK uh, at present. Uh, with 42 different charging points, uh, various different speeds. Um, so that's very exciting, and that's been live since July last year. And then there are some other nice elements on the um, uh, the uh, transport side, one of which relates to buses uh, and the other one to uh, uh, electrifying the Oxford, Oxford City's fleet. Fantastic, Tim. Thank you. And by, by my crude and probably incorrect calculations, that your battery is equivalent to about 1,000 pretty long-range electric vehicles, I, I think, at 50 megawatts. But we'll maybe maybe come back to you just to try and give a sense of how big this thing is. Um, mm. Cheryl, your experience with the PIFA program, what, what exactly have you been involved with, please? Yes, we've been involved in um, some different projects. So uh, the ones we've been working on are detailed design projects. So not demonstration, but looking at actual design. At the West Midlands, we've been involved in three different projects, leading one of them called the Regional Energy Systems Operator, which I'll tell you a bit more about in a minute, partnering on one called Zero Carbon Rugely, and also we're a replication area for the Green Skies project. So we've had the benefit of working across multiple different projects to see how, how they interrelate, what the um, synergies are between them, which has been really, really beneficial. So the main purpose of the projects has been to look at what value there is in taking a place-based approach to developing these smart local energy systems and where that value sits um, and how we can get hold of it, basically. So the RESO project, which is the Regional Energy Systems Operator project, was looking at how the region could play a role in the way the whole energy systems operates, not just how it's planned, but how it actually um, runs as well. So in that, we were seeing where where the value sits and how we might be able to change the system in the future. So um, thinking about what our future systems operator might look like um, to actually capture that value. And it was based in um, the city of Coventry, looking at a, a city scale energy solution. The Zero Carbon Rugely project again was looking at 
at the value locally, but actually our role in that was to identify how we might be able to extract that value through a finance mechanism. This was about the Rougely area where there was a big power station um, that's been taken down and they're redeveloping the area. Redeveloping the area could be spread through the energy system to the local area that already um, is, is established in Rougely. So we were particularly looking at the finance model to see how we could make that attractive and how we can bring private finance in. So in terms of the change that we're trying to make, I guess everyone knows that we, you know, we operate in a global energy market, which is obviously causing um, lots of challenges to us at the moment. And our national energy system is, um, again, run in a way that um, is very much focused on how the whole energy system can operate nationally. We've got a commitment to get to achieve net zero, and that transition is the kind of key focus of what most of these smart local energy system projects are about. Technically, at the moment, most of the investment goes into the big schemes. So um, that transition is about big investments, offshore wind and government setting mechanisms like the Contracts for Difference to support that transition. And the finance community are quite comfortable with that once it's proven and um, it, you know it's underwritten. It's something that um, they can work with. But the new system, the new energy system that we're going to have is going to be much more difficult to balance. You're not going to have the same firm power that we used to. And how we balance the system is the bit that we've been focusing on and the role of local place in doing that. The trouble is having lots of players, lots of different um, organisations um, affecting that makes it more difficult. Um, it makes it more complex. It's dispersed across the whole country. And that doesn't really attract finance in the same way that those large scale investments do. So that's what these projects have really been looking at, how we can innovate to find ways of making smart local energy systems financeable and attractive. Well, such an important point, isn't it? And I, I can imagine just listening to to some of the some of the challenges that you're mentioning, Cheryl, particularly around like that that difference in terms of scale and some of the lack of mechanisms when you start to go from this kind of big offshore scale to something that's much more, you know, bit smaller, requires, you know, looking at doing kind of bespoke things or or at least tailored things in different places. But also, I think in some ways it's can be fairly easy to get your head around or at least for me you know if you if you're talking about generation you are creating something you're creating something that you're selling and there is a value in what you're selling whereas sometimes I think we think about um what's going into the smart local energy systems and you're not necessarily selling the same sort of thing you know you, you might be selling flexibility you might be selling reduced demand you might be selling health outcomes it's a very very different thing to wrap your head around and so I'm just wondering if you can maybe expand a little bit around you know some of those challenges that you've experienced in terms of kind of getting projects like these finance so are you starting to see investors getting engaged in this are you do they do they understand the opportunity are they excited or is it a real challenge that you're experiencing yeah those are really good points becky um so is the industry is the finance industry excited yes um there are lots of people talking about um big sums of money um and saying that there's investors ready and they're really keen and they want to support this but then the challenge is how um, and it does come back to that scale thing, because actually I mean, a lot of the projects we're looking at just don't have the sort of ease of of size and something that people are used to. So the, the challenges we've got in terms of the projects, some elements of the smart local energy systems are profitable and have good rates of return, but others don't. So there are some significant parts of the energy transition that 
don't make a bankable return at the moment. And because of that, we're concerned that if we just let the market operate in the way that it does today, um, the public sector will be left with a pretty hefty bill to try and pick up all of those elements that aren't financeable or commercially viable at the moment. And the problem is that we can't really just let that happen because if we do, we won't be supporting the, the just energy transition that all of us want to see. So essentially, we're going to be leaving people behind. There are going to be people who are negatively impacted by that transition if we can't fund the non-profitable bits as well. So the projects that we've been working on have found that there are there is value in the interconnection between those projects. So the different bits, some that are profitable, some that aren't, there is value in that interconnection. But the main values are actually social and economic values rather than commercial values. So the challenge for the finance system is how do we capture those? How do we find a way of actually paying for them so that the public sector doesn't have that hefty bill and we do have a just transition? We have been working with the finance sector. They have been great. One of the things we set up as part of the RISO and um, Rougely project was our Smart Local Energy System Investor Panel. That's been acting as a critical friend for us, helping us get an investor perspective and understand how investors see these projects. And a number of different projects have come to that panel and then presented what they've got. I could probably go through quite a lot of the different challenges that the um, the industry has thrown up. But I guess if I put, put them into two blocks, there's a there's some things where I think the public sector can play quite an important role in helping solve the problem. So the projects are complex. There's a lack of consistency between them. They are all very different. Um, this is one problem. There is no easy solution to net zero. There's no silver bullet, as they say. Um, everything is um costly and complicated but that makes the due diligence really expensive for finance organizations so if they can't repeat that due diligence they don't see the value and, and, and struggle with the cost of that due diligence process the risks are also not really well understood so there's business model risk there's regulatory risk there's technology risk there's revenue risk and we need to find a way of helping reduce some of those risks otherwise investors are just not going to be able to come forward and the lack of a pipeline of projects, so lots of them all coming forward and being ready and actually investable when they get to the point of talking to those investors is also a problem. So there's a need for some sort of technical assistance to try and get them ready. And I think all of those things are being addressed to some extent by the place-based models and the role of perhaps a coordinating body. We call it a master developer. We're looking for a better term. We're trying to work out what that sounds like but some kind of coordination activity that supports it. But I think there's also an onus on the financiers as well. So people don't necessarily, they're not necessarily used to um, having the mix of different profiles within one funding package. So the finance community tends to apply the the highest risk to the whole the whole package, which doesn't really help us move them forward. And it obviously increases the cost. So I think there's a important element there where the, the finance community could help us find blended finance solutions that could apply to energy that they've probably used in other sectors in other places that might help with that. Oh my gosh there is so much in there for us to unpack. I just want to let Tim come in because I saw you nodding along to a lot of that Tim um, and I'm really interested because I remember kind of a very long time ago pre-COVID even being in one of the 
Project ESO meetings and you, you're talking about bringing together the transport piece of the work with the battery piece. And, and part of that was around this, you know, some bits are profitable, some bits are not, sort of coming back onto that some of that very early stuff Cheryl was saying. And, and we are absolutely going to dig into the rest of that as well. But just, I mean, is that is that something you've experienced um, and then been able to kind of address directly in terms of the solution that you've developed? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because we probably are in that sort of, the way Cheryl was talking about it, the, the, the slightly um, more traditional financing approach at the moment, I suppose, because these are large, this, the, the project that we've been, um, been building here is large infrastructure type, type stuff. It does have value streams and, you know, a battery has revenues, not always easy to <laughs> determine what those are going to be, but then therefore is investable, you know, a, a large sort of charging hub. Well, actually, for us, it's a it's a sort of infrastructure that provides the power to that. You know, does have a, a business case because you know we can work with charge point operators who are willing to pay for that that, that energy, etc. So, they're, they're, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's an issue for us in joining these things together because that is the model that we have. The Superhub Oxford being the first of these models where we're combining that battery and that transport piece, that uh, that charging hub. You know, we want to be rolling that out to many well up to 40 other places in the country actually based on these sort of transmission connections definitely there's there's a there's a challenge with that i mean batteries have changed a lot even in the last four years i mean since we we started this whole project but incidentally when pivot power who started the P, the pifa project who was which was very much a very small startup company you know when i when i i, I joined the project and had the challenge of trying to secure investment to be able to roll these out and and that's how we ended up talking to EDF renewables and becoming part of that business so you know combining that the two together carries on to be being an issue I mean, it's, it's it's something that uh, it can you know the the uh, the revenues that you can see associated with the transport side can support the battery uh, and vice versa and that was kind of you know important to us and important to EDF renewables when they bought pivot you know this was a new model and and Tim I, I'm maybe going to I'm actually going to ask a question to, to Cheryl initially, but I'd like to come back, I think, to how, where these revenue streams have changed over time in terms of mm. how the capital investment has has maybe shrunk in certain areas as, as, as costs have fallen, but also how things like electricity have shot up in price. I think that's important to talk about in a moment around the revenue. Mm-hmm. I, I just wanted to pick up on something that, that Cheryl mentioned, which, um, and that Cheryl, I wish I'd spoken to you yesterday before I resubmitted a, a, a journal paper that I'd had, and in which, you know, <laughs> was all about financing for community and local energy. And I was trying to kind of crack this difficult nut, which was, is it the is it that the money's wrong or that the business models are wrong or, or both? Because if, if, you, if you ask the local and community energy companies, they'll say the, the right money just isn't out there. And if you ask the investment companies, they'll say, "Well, they're just not the right. They're not the right fit for us." So, so I guess there's two questions here. One, maybe t- to Cheryl initially, what needs to change, or, or is, is the answer both? And then maybe we could talk a little bit about the revenue streams and, and where we're at at the moment with those. When I first started this, I assumed that it was us in the public sector that were getting it wrong, and us in the community sector that were getting it wrong. I assumed the finance system has been operating perfectly well for <laughs> hundreds of years, so it's all it was all our fault because this is all new. Um, what has what working with the Sledge Investor Panel has taught us is that the problem is on both sides, and that's been a really eye-opening kind of experience to understand that. Um, in understanding that it's helping us with the finding of the solutions because we realized that the finance community and 
the public sector and the energy community all need to work together to try and find solutions that are actually going to overcome these challenges. So in, in terms of finding solutions that can work, bringing the partners together is, is critical. Um, and in terms of moving money into the space, mm. the, the finance community, I think, have quite a lot of power and control um, in terms of looking at different ways of doing this. So some might argue that um, they don't need to because there's lots more attractive things to go after. Um, but actually, from a from a com- country's perspective, in terms of achieving our net zero yeah. objectives, we really need the private finance as part of this. So we do need that collaboration. So the, I guess there's an interesting question: you know, do they need pushing, or, or do they need pulling? Uh, and the pulling there goes back there, Tim, around the, the value of the revenue streams. You know, if, if there's a buck to be made here, you know, you can bet your bottom dollar that many of these finances are going to look at this space and get serious about it. So uh, the, the the economics of power generation and supply low carbon have fundamentally changed over the last few years and even more so over the last few months so so where are we we at uh, on that front yeah i mean i think just from the perspective of uh, of, of us and we talk about edf uh, renewables as, a, as an investor because i guess we are an investment you know a business in this sense because you know, we're looking for that revenue stream and then uh, you know being a large uh, you know, a, a large corporate. You know, we 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 do have the funds to then invest in those sort of projects. It's been interesting how, for example, in storage, that has changed over the course of this project. I think at the beginning, where um, trying to create a case for a purely merchant revenue stream. You know, when I say merchant, I mean therefore, you know, with no uh, no investment uh, government uh, support me- mechanisms. Trying to demonstrate that was not not as easy as you might imagine it was and during the sort of acquisition process that we went through we were able to do that but since then and of course the whole market's gone crazy and the revenue streams and and actually for batteries it's not just the sort of you know the level of it's not energy prices it's the volatility that creates that opportunity you know for um, for storage uh, well it's two things really it's 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 a it's a kind of arbitrage opportunity but also um, the, the the volatility in the in the the um, electricity network means that uh, national grid is out there securing securing contracts for people to help stabilize the grid so a lot of the work that we've been doing that's changed and that's been another enormous change which we didn't expect at the beginning of this we thought we'd be doing a lot of trading so, so on, on balance are we kind of in a more positive investment space now climate for for these types of projects yeah. than when when you began the, this initial project well we are well, so this is quite specific because i'm talking you know, of the large batteries we are because i think you can make the case for the volatility that will settle again over time you know as the, and as the as this this whole change to the energy infrastructure uh, balances, and we have a a, a, a sort of more uh, a system that, that can deal with these ups and downs, and you know, and renewables, it, it will tend to balance out. But at the moment, very much so. I mean, it's, and the last you know couple of years has really seen a huge increase in that. So that's quite specific to batteries. You know, the whole transport piece. Um, uh, I think that's. Obviously, there's just a growing market there, so that is more. There is the demand, really. The charge point operators want to open sites, and therefore they're looking for power. And and certainly that's going to be really going to be the case with fleets and buses and all that sort of thing. So there's a real opportunity. The other bit we haven't talked about, I just want to mention though, from a, a sort of financing point of view, is the heat piece of our project, which is a bit. It's not transmission connected. It's a bit um, separate. It's a bit divorced from from the rest of the project on that basis, but very much. 
our, our heat partner, Kenza, you know, who in, in the, and with the project, we've installed a number of ground source heat pumps at um, social housing residences in, uh, in Oxford. But their vision is very much to roll out a green street, you know, and sort of replace the gas network with ground source shared arrays up and down the streets, and then people can connect off them pretty much as they do with boilers. So, but the financing side of that is a, a different challenge, I think. And I, I mean, I can't go into too much of the detail because it's very much their, their piece. But no, and I've I've seen I've seen them pitch that before. It's very interesting, almost having like a neighbourhood loop. Absolutely. That if you imagine, you know, let's take it to even just the level of a cul-de-sac. That you know, that that ring of homes would connect to a single heat pump loop. That's right. Um, as I understand it, which is very exciting. And 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 in order to do that, obviously, I mean, there's just a very there's a big investment required to be able to roll that not you know in in individual areas, but over a broader. Um, um, uh, you know, geography, uh, we need something, there is something there that needs something supportive from government, I think, to ensure that it is attractive enough and that sort of, you know, there's a there's a sort of patient long-term element to that finance in some way. So I think that's what the guys in Kenza are dealing with. I say it's not my, I'm afraid it's not my, um, my, my, my core expertise, that bit, but interesting. Tim, I think you've picked up on a really important point there, and that's the kind of role of place. And coming from the public sector's perspective, um, that's what we've been looking at. Um, if you take those at different elements, the, the transition in terms of the way the network now uses storage, I think is fantastic. What we need to get to, though, is where that storage can be distributed again around um, lots of small scale properties and um, places, you know, even down to the vehicle to grid type model so that they can incentivize the transition that we need to see, because actually that transition isn't the incentives aren't there yet. So the bits that don't make the money are the domestic properties, the, the homes, as you were talking about, some of those elements where you need the market to play a slightly different role in order to get the money into those sorts of investments. Retrofit is by far the hardest element of uh, the complete smart local energy system. It's the bit where the, and no matter how much you play with the numbers, the IRR just doesn't seem, just doesn't seem to work. Um, and it's those sorts of solutions that Kenza and others are coming up with that look at whole places where you can get a bit of scale and you can start to create a community around that transition that can really make a difference. And so um, a lot of the work that we've been doing in Zero Carbon Rugely has led to the whole of the West Midlands doing a, a net zero neighbourhood programme where we're trying to look at that spatial element and understand how we can bring private finance into the retrofit space, which is, is it's very difficult, but I think we're really, really close to that now. And that's what these innovation projects have really helped stimulate. Earlier, Cheryl, you were explicitly talking about the economic and social value that's being generated. And I mean, it's one of the it's one of the challenges that sort of the the people that might be capturing that value are not the same as the people that might be investing. Um, you know, are we are we seeing a, a kind of mismatch here around where that value is kind of um being captured and, and who might invest and and also what sort of investors, right? So lots of investors looking for very, very different things, not just in terms of that kind of financial return and the scale and the duration, but presumably there are some investors that might be very interested in, um, you know, models that are delivering these uh, additional outcomes. I mean, are you seeing that kind of mix in the space of of, of the sorts of investors that you're, that you're um, getting here? Yes, you've absolutely hit the nail on the head in relation to the fact that those who are investing um, at the moment aren't necessarily the ones who are receiving the value and that that's the fundamental problem that we're looking to try and solve um, and it's also 
it's even true within the the public sector itself. So if you assume that a lot of these um, smart local energy systems as a whole will still require grant funding in some way um, because we have to make sure that we don't leave people behind. So making sure that that investment takes place. The value is at the moment invested through the energy department, so Department of Business, Energy, Industrial Strategy. The value that might accrue might be to the health department. So it might be that you have warmer homes, healthier homes, less people going into um, hospital with respiratory diseases, etc. And those connections are virtually impossible to make unless you're at a local level. So we believe that if you're working at a place-based level, you do start to see some of that investment and you can make the links between who who puts the money in and who gets the value out because from a place perspective if you perhaps have a local authority where all of that comes together and and that's where you can track it in a much better way how do we do that Cheryl? because this is this is a real thorny issue i, I love your point you know who who is investing isn't necessarily who's benefiting and, and you gave the example there of the nhs and we've heard just just today that you know amber rudd former energy minister has been talking about um, you know, prescribing warmer homes, uh, you know, as, as sort of part of this attack of the NHS. We've heard similar debates there around shifting to active travel and electric vehicles in terms of reducing air pollution. So this is this is there. But how have you thought a little bit about how we do this? Because for me, and Becky, I know we've talked about this at length about co-benefits and how you monetize these. Until we find a way forward on this. My gut reaction is that a lot of this stuff will remain quite niche. However, once we start to kind of, this sounds quite business school speaky, but internalize those environmental externalities, i.e. putting a price signal associated with those things that affect everybody and the, you know, the environment around us, this, this stuff doesn't fly in in my view. Uh, Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there is a way forward, but I I can't, I can't point to somebody who's had the answer just yet. I think you're right. I don't think we have, prove the answer but I think there's a couple of different elements so I think place-based funding could help overcome some of those barriers that um, we were talking about in terms of governmental departments so you'll probably know at the moment that um, combined authorities are negotiating with government devolution deals to um, take money that that all the different government departments want to invest in a place and say right let's um, invest this through a combined authority in a place that if if the flexibility is put into that funding, it, you do start to be able to invest in solutions that provide those different value streams. And you can recognise that as part of the process. If you see what I mean, you can record it as a return on investment for all of that grant funding that was put forward rather than the individual stream. So I think place-based funding is a really important outcome element of this. In terms of the outcome buyers element, I think that's where we might be able to see some changes in market incentivization. So lots of us have worked on the smart local energy systems projects because we believe that it's a more cost effective solution to have a smarter energy system than it is to invest in lots, basically over engineer the the system. But we have to try and find a way of capturing that. So, for example, if a distribution network operator, as we were talking before, can see that there is a better business case to invest in flexibility than there is to upgrade the infrastructure and you can capture that value so they can actually put a money figure on it then we can start to say okay it's worth them paying for some of this up front and actually that's what's going to have to happen a lot of this stuff has got to be funded through the energy bill payer through the energy system but not just attracting private return finance that's got that needs a return if you see what i mean it's got to be those players within the system 
yeah to, to try and simplify that then maybe is it in my mind i've kind of got this bullseye chart or diagram which has got rings and in the middle of that ring is is a personal household and as you go further and further out you're going from the local to the regional to the national international and and is it about trying to kind of connect there the the money going in to the benefits that are coming out at at a particular level so you've mentioned there if it's local council they're investing that they have their hands on the purse strings of investments which will yield a benefit at the local level. Ditto if it's a regional uh, investor like a, a distribution network operator, they're looking for regional. I know it. this is oversimplifying it, but it, in some respects it kind of helps me think through it a bit. I, absolutely. There, there is a huge role for each of those different levels. And, you know, I'm certainly not saying that smart local energy systems will solve our problems. We have to have you know, large scale national um, investment and transition. We have to have um, something in between that and the very local as well. But I think actually taking it all the way down to that person centric approach was is where we found the story to make sense. So when we started looking at it from a person perspective, um, particularly the, the fuel poverty work led us to this. So when we started to think, OK, government are investing in measures on a property to address fuel poverty. Why isn't it working? Um, the West Midlands suffers from one of the highest levels of fuel poverty and has done for, for a long, long time. We want to try and crack that. We want to try and understand why. And when you start thinking about it from that individual perspective, you can see those impacts and values. So, yeah, I, I think it's a mm. it's a nice analogy. It, it's completely yeah. flawed, of course, but <laughs> sometimes you have to throw it out there to, to make sense of what the answer is. Yeah, Tim, earlier you were you mentioned that you know you're you're running Energy Super Hub Oxford, but actually there's this kind of you know it's it's almost like the first in a pipeline of 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 other projects that might look fairly similar to that in other places around the country. As, you know, we've talked a bit about that kind of pipeline and the need to, to for investors to see that. Do you think that, that that pipeline approach that you're taking is is helping attract investment into this? That is, is it addressing some of the kind of risk or, you know, insecurities in the models? Yeah, it, it, it's, it's a, if we think about this specific model that we, we're trying to roll out, which is, you know, storage and um, transport and, and um, you know, basically the private wire um, charging capability. There are two sort of streams to it, really, and I think one of the streams is a bit more traditional. And there's, you know, we have we have 40 connection points up and down the national grid uh, network. We can roll out those batteries. And that's a pretty traditional sort of development role. Yeah, where it gets much more complicated, I think, is is in these the sort of super hub type type concepts and and what's come across very strongly to me is the, how collaborative that piece absolutely has to be in terms of it not just you know how you build things but the investment side so for example at the oxford one and this will be the case elsewhere you know we have a number of parties who are all really investing in this in their own way there's uh, you've got you've got us and uh, in edf renewables building a piece of infrastructure to to pipe power to to charge point operators you've got the council with the land in this case, which is a park and ride, and they have a sort of investment case to be able to make to be able to you know offer bays to charge point operators in that particular location, and that's a whole different type of approach in public, very much public sector driven. You've got the charge point operators themselves who are uh, making their own cases to install what are pretty expensive bits of equipment, you know, some of these rapid charges, etc., and all that lot's got to come together in a you know, and each one of these things is going to be a little bit 
well, pretty bespoke. You know, as I said, this is very public. Future ones that we may roll out may be more to, more to do with charging buses, maybe more to do with charging fleets. So they've all got their own sort of investment approach to this. But I think that collaborative approach, you've got multi-party and you've got public-private sector. I mean, the public sector, the, 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 the local authority is going to be absolutely core, I think, in this wherever we go, and particularly around that charging piece. And what we learned very much in this project is you know, there was it was we were all doing this the first time, and for the for the, the council, you know, from a resources and skills point of view, there were some huge challenges, big gaps that they recognised, and I think, you know, there's definitely a role. I think Cheryl mentioned the sort of body that uh, that can sort of support this sort of activity, and maybe from a finance point of view, definitely from a skills and resource point of view. But I think there's a lot of work on in a lot of projects in this sort of program. But I do think. That would be a huge help to local authorities and other partners sort of launching these sort of activities to be able to really learn what's happened before and how other people have done it. Well, excellent. Tim, Cheryl, thank you very much. Before we end, I'm going to set you both a very small challenge, a bit naughty because we didn't ask you this beforehand, um, but uh, rather on the spot. If you could sort of wrap up in 10 or 15 words, please, what what needs, what are this kind of the biggest issue that needs to be resolved to unlock this investment? So I'm just going to give you a second to sit back in your chairs and think, Matt, why did you ask me that question? And Cheryl, I don't know whether you want, want to have a go first, because I think you've kind of, well, both of you have mentioned this in different ways. Cheryl, is there anything you could say, a plea to the wider world? So I think where we are at the moment, so this is probably reflecting the piece of work that I'm particularly involved in at the moment, we feel very, very close to getting to a point where we think we can help the finance sector who are very, very keen to invest in the retrofit world and because they see that as a huge market, as you can imagine, we're very close to getting to the point that that we could accept their money. <laughs> the, the, our plea is really to stop working in silos, to actually come to a place and try it. Because if we try to f- design something that is perfect now for the whole of the country, we're going to be here for a long time. If we can move forward invest in the mechanism that we think we've got through for the series of net zero neighborhoods that we have already got up and running we're working with our cohorts of local authorities i think we could demonstrate how this could really work and we could bring public grant alongside private finance and actually scale this up because the problem we have got with all of these is scaling it up mm. okay so you've, you've heard it here first get around the table now and sort it out thank you cheryl Tim, I can see you kind of jotting away furiously, and I'm, I'm also <laughs> potentially calculating how many words you've written down. Uh, what? No, what we got? Just writing over the same three words uh, multiple times. So don't don't worry. No, no I think I think um, you know what we do need is you know for me it's a sort of long term plan. You know, and I, I take what Cheryl says. You know, we're not going to be able to design it perfectly on day one, but I do think we you know there are some high there are high level government targets which are sort of. You know, driving that uh, this overall initiative towards net zero, but I, you know, precious little at the moment detail below that. And we and and I think the reason why it's important to have that detail at plan is that in, from a finance and investment point of view, you know, I really think that certainty is what and, and long term certainty is what drives investment in 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 all these areas. So I think that's one 
you know, very general point, but very big point. I think the other one for me is a bit regulatory clarity, and this is another challenge that we had in the project. You know, we, there are certain things where I think regulation and innovation don't always, you know, they're, they're not they're not in lockstep. Let's put it that way. Put it nicely. And I think we need to find a way of the the, the regulatory system, which is quite in, in energy. It's it's, it's quite uh, it takes a long time to get anything changed. Um, you know, trying to find some flexibility that allows us to do some of these things without getting stuck so thank you cheryl thank you tim that's that's fantastic really enjoyed your company and thank you for all your insights thank you yes thank you to our guests and you've been listening to local zero remember to join us next week for our pifa special on skills and supply chains and if you haven't already go and subscribe to the pod wherever you get your podcasts Find us at Local Zero Pod on Twitter or email localzeropod at gmail.com if you want to share some longer thoughts. Absolutely. And if you are a fan of the pod or you're simply feeling generous, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast from and send us soaring to the top of the podcast charts. But for now, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. bye. Produced by Bespoken Media.